6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. And the writer relies heavily all the way through on Israel's exodus as an example, a type. Remember Romans 15, 4, whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning so that we through the patient and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Whatsoever things are written. The book of Numbers is a guidebook for us in, in part because we want to understand how Israel blew it. Over a million were saved out of Egypt and only two inherited What's the lesson there? We better pay attention. And uh, the redeemed people failed to heed God's instruction and was judged for disobedience. So why? Because God in his love and mercy saw fit to move the author of Hebrews to warn his readers. And by the way, that's us. God's purpose here is to warn us of what we might miss out on. My wife always kids me when I'm at the dinner table, the dog's watching me eat. And I often talk to the dog, boy, are you missing out? This is good stuff, you know. <laughs> anyway, the author loved the recipients enough to warn them of impending danger. Paul loved the Jews. He wished he'd been called to the Jews. He was called to the Gentiles. Peter took the Jews, he took the Gentiles. That was the, the, the division. But every time he spoke to the Hebrews, there was a riot. The Romans had to arrest him to save his life. So he wrote this letter. He didn't, put, he didn't write apostolically. He wrote quoting their authorities, the Old Testament, at every step of the way. He doesn't sign it because that would just add prejudice against it. They knew who he was. You'll find that out as you read the letter. But um, that would prejudice it. And by the way, God wanted future readers also to understand the danger that accompanies apostasy. Apostasy doesn't have to be vigorous rejection of the faith. Apostasy can be indifference. If you've been, in, if you've been saved and regarded casually, that's a form of apostasy, believe it or not. The original recipients of the letter were Christians. Each warning will substantiate that fact. The correct interpretation of the entire book hangs on one question. Were the people addressed believers or unbelievers? Were they saved, unsaved, or half-saved? Being facetious a little bit. That's the question you need to answer for yourself. And by the way, two dozen times, the writer includes himself in the warnings and admonitions. Uh-oh. Paul includes himself. You'll find the word we in some very key places. And the question you have to answer yourself when you get to Hebrews 10, does God urge an unconverted, half-saved professor to hold fast to his false profession? I don't think so. But that alone nails it for you. What's at stake here? You've spent an evening here. 
What are these believers going to lose, forfeit, or suffer? What's at stake here? Not salvation. We go through a whole annex here of John 10 and Romans 8 and, you know, you know the passages. No, what, what's at issue here are rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the issue. We don't talk much about that. Churches generally don't preach much about that. We cannot escape by applying this to other people. You can't escape this by assuming it really means somebody else. The burden of the epistle to Hebrews is not the rescuing of sinners from hell. That's not what it's about. It's about bringing the sons to glory. The completion of your sanctification. We're going to see a composite portrait of Christ. Chapter 1 emphasizes the coming rule of Christ, and that's a millennial thing. It begins and centers on the coming glory of Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures. You're going to find in this chapter alone, there are seven quotations from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That became the believer's Bible in those days, even though they were Jewish. The kingdom is the grand central theme not of the book of Hebrews, of all Scripture. You go, wow, that's kind of quite... So you must go, you're going to go... Now you're going to go to Romans 20, uh, to Revelation 20. No, no, I'm not. I'm going to 1 Corinthians 15, which Paul would say is the most important chapter in the Bible. Because if you don't have 15, you don't have nothing. You don't have, you don't have anything. Paul would say that, but virtually says that. Without the resurrection of Christ, it's all for nothing. So in that resurrection chapter, let's pick it up about verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So far so good. Familiar, right? Then cometh the end when he, Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. He's not talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven from God, the kingdom from heaven. Delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And he continues. For he hath put all things under his feet. And Paul adds sort of a parenthesis here. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is ex accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be what? All in all. all, in all. That's the goal. That's what Christ is about. It ain't there yet. It won't be there until after the millennium. That's part of what it's all about. Understand that. The kingdom is the grand central theme of all Scripture. We... We could do that several ways. I chose to do it that way. What makes this so confusing is most churches deny the idea of the kingdom. They're, they're amillennial. They've chosen to allegorize that. And in so doing, they miss the point. Amillennialism is not a peripheral issue. I have for 60 years argued, as Walter Martin used to argue too, is that eschatology is peripheral theology. Good Christians can have different views about the end times. That's certainly true. There is a why in the road. The first why you come to in eschatology is, are you premillennial or amillennial? 
And there are, there are a number of people on my staff, they're a little uncomfortable because I hit this so hard. But I'm, the more I study, the more I'm convinced we should be hitting it hard. Because to be amillennial requires you to call God a liar. That's different than having a little different view about the timing of Ezekiel 38 or something. That's fundamental. In fact, by being amillennial, you blind yourself from the kingdom perspectives. And that's the trouble with the church today. They have no grasp of the kingdom. They have no grasp of the judgment seat really being real. They have no grasp of what heaven's really all about. And it's all in the scripture. We're not making this up. It's there. Check it out for yourself. There's more prophecy about the millennium than any other period of time. It's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And we'll be talking more about that next time. And about our inheritance. Not our justification. It's our inheritance that's view. And that will be a result of our faithfulness and obedience. You can earn your salvation. Don't misunderstand me. But you can qualify for the inheritance God has for you by trusting him, by believing him. Jesus has three offices, and we're going to understand those better from this epistle than any other passage in the entire Bible. The very first three verses of this, book, of this epistle, Christ's prophetic office, his kingly office, and his priestly office, prophet, priest, and king, all three. So the first seven chapters presents Jesus, the new and better deliverer, over, contrasting with Judaism. The God-man better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron. Those are going to be covered by the first four chapters. In chapters 8 and 9, we're going to talk about uh, Calvary and the priesthood of Christ. Better promises, better sanctuary, better sacrifice, has far better results, and he's going to hit that. And then the last part of the book will be, what do we do about it? The doing of it all. But we're in chapter 1, and last time we did just three verses. To get a flavor of it. And I'm not going to redo all that, but we certainly will summarize it. In those first three verses, the writer establishes that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, that through the Son all ages, and by the way, that's not worlds, it's time domains, is what the Greek term really means, were made. He is the brightness of God's glory. He's the image of the Father. He upholds all things by his power. He's holding it together still. We talked about that all last time. And he made, pure, he, made, he made the purification of sin, and he sat down the uh, majesty on high, the only, term that, only place that appears in the entire Bible. That was, the first, that was just for three verses, by the way. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about him being superior to the angels. The, last, the, next, you know, the next ten verses that finish this chapter are going to focus on his deity, but specifically in the context that he, Christ, is superior to the angels. That may sound strange to you, that may seem obvious to you, but it has some implications that we want to really understand. Then in chapter 2, we're going to take up the, the virtue of his, that he's not just deity, he's humanity. The fact that he's God is part of the picture, it's half the, the other half, he's human. He's not some Gnostic apparition and there's all these weird ideas, in the, you know. And we're going to also discover uh, uh, that he is superior because of the salvation he provided. All three of these issues are with respect in contrast to angels. That sounds like a, frame, a, a strange frame of reference. But again, that's one of the pillars of Judaism where the whole role and mission of angels. But as you go through this, there is a small group of verses that open chapter 2 that we're going to treat as if it's part of chapter 1. doesn't matter. Um, is the first of five warnings. We'll get a taste of what that's all about. But we're going to be in this whole business of his deity. So we, we 
picking up now from the three verses. We took three verses last time, and it took us, what, uh, half our time to catch up. Okay. The writer says, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Being made so much better. So he's above the angels. Now, inheritance is going to be a key issue, so I won't deal with it here. Now, let's talk a little bit about angels, because he's, he's, he's premising all this to contrast with angels. What do we know about angels? Well, to see, the Jews regarded the angels as the most exalted of all God's creatures. That's why the writer is picking on them first. He's also going to talk about Moses and Aaron, a lot of other things, but he's starting with angels. The law, made it sm- this shocked me to discover, but it's true. The law was given to Moses by angels. God gave it to them, but the angels were the means, if you will. You find that in Deuteronomy 3, Psalm 68, and twice in the New Testament, Acts 7, 53, and Galatians 3, 19. That surprised me. They were the agency here. God came from Sinai with 10,000 holy ones, Deuteronomy tells us. Now, in the King James, they, they say saints, but it actually should be holy ones, a term that's used there in the Hebrew, uh, also in, in Psalm 68, uh, 17, is a term really used by the Jews of angels, not saints in a broader amorphous sense. And if you were brought up with an Old Testament background, you would have a very high view of angels. If you, if you really understand, the reader was a Christian, but he really had an Old Testament roots. And so that's a, that's a big deal. In fact, some of these angel appearances in the Bible are called by theologians theophanies. Because the term angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh, and so on, are terms that many scholars think are idioms for God himself appearing somehow. And some of them are regarded as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Appearance in the Old Testament prior to Bethlehem. The angel of the covenant, Malachi 3 and Exodus 3. The angel who delivered Hagar in Genesis 16. The angel that delivered Lot while the other two went and took care of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. The Passover night, the death angel that got the firstborn was an an angel. You don't mess with angels. Mm Mm-hmm. The angels are, but the, as high as they are, the writer's going to emphasize they're created beings. They were present at the creation of the world. They, they shouted for joy. They were made. The scripture highlights that they were made, created, fashioned, use what term you like. They appear to be immortal, that is, in the sense they don't die. They weren't forever, they were created, but they don't have any apparent end. They're immortal. They don't die like we do. Heaven is their home. Those are all things you can, you can develop from the Scripture. They excel in strength, Psalm 103 and elsewhere. They're capable, apparently, of choices because some of them chose to follow Lucifer in his rebellion. And that's confirmed twice in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2 and Jude 1. They are capable of assuming all kinds of forms. They can be invisible. They can materialize. Demons can't materialize. Angels can. There's apparently they're not the same. Fallen angels and demons are not necessarily the same thing. Angels can appear like men. Genesis 18 is an example. Some, we're told in Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to discover that some of us may have entertained angels unawares. They can masquerade at a dinner table, we wouldn't recognize them. Stranger on the highway, whatever. On the other hand, they can also take on some pretty wild appearances. Matthew 28, they had countenance like lightning, rain as white as snow. And you don't mess around with angels. Two of them wiped out the major cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in in an hour. One of them one evening destroyed 185,000 Syrian soldiers. 
One guy, one, one angel. You don't mess with angels. At the Egyptian Passover, the firstborn of the cattle and everything else was slain by, angel, by, by the death angel. They're ministering, but they are God's ministers. They do his bidding. They also minister to God, apparently, Daniel 7.10. They are holy. They surround God's throne. Angels are seen doing battle on our behalf, 2 Kings 6 and several, Psalms, Habakkuk, several places. An angel stopped the mouth of the lion for Daniel in Daniel 6. The angel several times sprung people out of prison. Acts 5 and 12, that occurs. The writer picks seven Old Testament passages to support that Christ is superior to the angels. He proves this from the Old Testament, not the New. I think that's interesting. We'll see those. By the way, there's all kinds of ranks of angels. They're not all equal. Thrones, principalities, powers, and the angelic kingdom. And, and I, we assume, reason to believe, that there are different ranks in Satan's realm also. They apparently accept material food in Genesis 8. They, they eat dinner. And they can appear in human form. I mentioned that. They never dwell in men's bodies. Demons do that. Angels don't. They don't need to. Ranks of angels. There are a handful of these that are distinct in the Greek. They're translated principalities, powers, thrones, and dominions. But the Greek terms that we find in at least four places and elsewhere imply ranks of angels. And we're not here to split hairs on that. But, uh, excuse me, there's five of them. One of them is translated power. Two different words are translated powers, but there's five different ranks apparently, at least. Let's continue. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. Thou art my son. This is something that God said of Jesus, not the angels. This day. What day? He's begotten. And uh, we're going to find out that there were five times that he says all these things. But anyway... And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so, you know, it's interesting. It was Paul's style to ask a question to make a point. All through his epistles, we find him doing that, right? I want you to be sensitive of these style issues. This, in my opinion, it's Paul. But anyway, he's quoting here from Psalm 2, and he's also quoting from 2 Samuel 7. And when I first saw that years ago, I didn't realize the significance of that. 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant. This thread really starts, in a sense, with the Davidic covenant and climaxes with the millennium. And, uh, and the Father declared it twice, verbally, at the baptism in Matthew 3, and at the transfiguration, Matthew 17, audibly, from heaven, this is my son. Now, implies that the event occurs in time. That means it's happening within the physical universe. We're not talking about eternity beforehand. It's in the physical thing of time. That'll be, turn out to be significant later. But the second Samuel seven fourteen, I want you to notice that because this this thread is linked to the Davidic covenant, as we will bring out in the next session. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's a reference to the promise that God gave David in 2 Samuel 7, which we see celebrated in Psalm 89 all through that psalm. Notice the writer here is drawing again and again and again from the Old Testament. The Messiah 
is to be the son of David, literally. We all see in our Christmas cards, Isaiah 9-6, right? And uh, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's not a, those aren't synonymous. A child is born is human, a son is given is divine. They're both in view there. Respect the precision of the text. Game verse 6, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, let all the angels of God worship him. All the angels of God worship who? The Son of God. He's above, he, the, the, the point is that he's above the angels. And by the way, he's quoting from the Greek version of the, the uh, uh, Old Testament in Psalm 97. And all angels are commanded to worship Jesus Christ. Thus is the point made that Christ is above the angels. The term first begotten, you should be sensitive to that subject. That's a term that involves dignity, honor, a position of excellency. Reuben, in the Old Testament, was the firstborn, but he forfeited it. Being a firstborn can be forfeited. Reuben did through sin in Genesis 49. The, the uh, dominion aspect of his firstbornness was given to Judah. The double portion aspect wasn't given to Judah. It was given to Joseph who had two sons that were subsequently adopted by Jacob to become, in effect, 13 tribes. Joseph was split into two, so to speak. And so, but it's interesting that the forfeiture of that inheritance would have been Reuben's had he not messed up. Part of it was given to Judah, the dominion aspect, and the double portion aspect was given to two others. Israel is spoken of as God's firstborn. They went down to Egypt as a family. They came out as a nation, and they were treated as the God's firstborn. That's where the nation was born. And uh, in the New Testament, it appears seven times, by the way. And it's one of the 300. That's the, Christ is the firstborn. It's mentioned seven times. And it's one of 300 titles of Christ in the Bible. Let's go on, verse 7. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers as a flame of fire. That's quoted literally from Psalm 104, fourth verse. And uh, where did where did ministers as a flame of fire? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah is one example, right? The fire over Egypt in the, in the Passover episodes. Continuing. But unto the Son he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. There's again a reference to a kingdom. Whose kingdom? The son's kingdom. We're going to be more and more sensitive. This is quoted from Psalm 45. And they draw a lot from that. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Statement of his divinity. The father is saying to the son, unto thy throne, O God. He's calling the son God, he's giving, and he has his own throne. This is a statement about the Son's deity, the deity of Jesus Christ. And for how long? For a thousand years? No. Forever and ever. There's a specific thousand-year period that's another subject. So how long is the throne? Forever and ever. His reign is eternal. We know that from Isaiah 6, verse 7, 9, chapter 9, verse 7. His throne is forever, Daniel 7. The promise to Mary... Gabriel tells Mary that her child is going to rule forever and ever. Thy kingdom. That is going to be a big subject as we unfold this interesting epistle. And we're going to find the roots of that in the Davidic covenant. And my author, uh, uh, that's, of course, from Amos 9, 11, 
when they had the big debate in Acts 15 about what does a Gentile have to do to become a, a Christian and so forth. James presides and he resolves the dispute by quoting from Amos 9 that first he'll call out a people for the Gentiles and then shall the tabernacle of David be reestablished. And he quotes Amos 9 and, and, uh, in Acts 15 and we'll be dealing with that again later. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity before God. Even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That's continuing the quote from Psalm 45. There are two sides to his reign. Let's realize it's a two-edged sword, so to speak. He loved righteousness and he hates iniquity. You can't forget either one of those. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. We need, you and I need to hate sin more than we do. We get it mixed up. We love sin and hate the sinner. We don't have to admit it, but we do. No, it should be the other way around. We love the sinner, as he did. But we hate sin. We understand that God hates sin. And God sends the comforter to help us to hate sin. That's John 14 and elsewhere. So all the way through, we have messianic overtones. He announces his deity. He presents his position, his throne, his kingship, reference to the scepter, excellency or impartially of his reign, the perfection of his character on earth, the place of his subjection, the reward in terms of being anointed, and his preeminence. These are all emerging from just a few verses. Continue verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. The foundation of the earth. Wow. Most of us don't realize what the earth is. Most of us think of the earth as part of the creation. And indeed it is. And yet, some surprising discoveries in Genesis. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.